The reign of terror in France is over and Robespierre is dead. But the revolution isn't over yet. It's all about Napoleon Bonaparte, today on Footnoting History. Happy Bastille Day weekend, everybody. I'm Christine. And I'm Nathan. And welcome to this week's Footnoting History. When Nathan and I did a dual podcast counting down our favorite parts of the French Revolution, we thought that the Napoleonic era would be a logical next step. But we're doing this part a little bit differently. Uh, instead of breaking it down into a top ten list, uh, we've split this topic into two separate sections with sort of uh, five topics each. And today, we're going to be tackling Napoleon the Man. Figuratively. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I now have this mental picture of tackling Napoleon literally, and You're it's well, and, and it's it's coming. Um, this is this is not, uh, of course, it's figuratively. This is not Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So uh, that's this time. Next time we'll continue by looking at Napoleonic society. So once you sort of know about the man himself, we can start to then talk about what it might have been like to live in France during the major period of, in, of his influence between 1799 and 1814, 1815. Uh, but first, we're going to be dealing with the man behind the myth and the people who were immediately uh, surrounding him, his friends, his family members, and his court. Yes, but lest you worry that we're going to turn this into some sort of crazy blow-by-blow blow of the Battle of Waterloo or something. Which neither of us is interested in. No, we're not going to do that. This is not going to be military history. Um, we should probably subtitle this as Things You Never Pondered About Napoleon. I like that. That works for me. The, the word pondered works for you? <laughs> yes, I like the word pondered. Our first topic that we're, we'll be dealing with is Baby Napoleon. A lot of times whenever we picture major figures in history or world leaders, whenever we read their biographies, we you know learn about their childhood. But it seems to be a – there's sort of a disconnect between Napoleon as a child and Napoleon as a man. But even as a child, we see sort of hints of the kind of man that he would become. Napoleon was the second surviving son of Carlo and Letizia Buonaparte. And if that name sounds Italian, that's because it is. Because Napoleon, great leader of, you know, French history, isn't actually French. Um, kind of like how... I, this is probably a terrible comparison to make, but kind of like how Hitler wasn't actually German. His, Hitler was Austrian. Except for the fact that Napoleon was not Hitler. Well, so no. Let's, let's, not, let's not entertain that. Not no. the same thing. <laughs> but Napoleon wasn't actually French. He was actually of Italian descent. What happened is a year before his birth, and he was born, by the way, on August 15th, 1769, mm. a year before his birth, France had actually obtained the island of Corsica from the Republic of Genoa. And, and he will actually speak French his whole life with a, a bit of an Italian uh, accent. Well, it's the Corsican mm -hmm. accent, but it's, it's a Absolutely. slightly Italian, uh, Italian accent in um, French. His life is, is incredibly well documented. And then you look at all of sort of the information for his life, as um, we did for this podcast, and you find that there isn't really that much about him as a child. A lot of what we know comes from memoirs. And these memoirs are full of anecdotes and remembrances by people who knew, knew Napoleon whenever he was young. And a couple stick out as sort of indicative of what Napoleon was like as a child. 
One in particular comes from the memoirs of his older brother Giuseppe, or Joseph, which were written in 1817 while his brother was in exile in, of all places, New Jersey. Yeah, I actually, I really enjoy that note. I like to think about the fact that they were in the United States because, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about European royalty and things that seem very remote to us, and you won't necessarily think that French royalty, or actually think about it, Joseph eventually becomes king of Spain. So right. you have a king of Spain who abdicates that throne, and then he ends up living in Bordentown, New Jersey, on an estate called Point Breeze, writing a memoir about his brother, the former emperor. The other example of that, though, is um, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who is mm-hmm. sort of the, the hero of Italian unification in the 19th century, actually leaves Italy and goes and lives in Staten Island in, mm-hmm. in New York City for a while. So, actually, did you know, there's actually an entire line of the Bonaparte family that takes up in the south of the United States because Napoleon's sister, Caroline, her son eventually becomes the mayor of Tallahassee, Florida. He marries an American and he lives in America and he begins the American line of the Bonaparte family. He's really a prince because his mother and father were the king and queen of Naples. So there you go. Bonaparte's in America. In Tallahassee, Florida, no less. (laughs) That's right. Well, The story that Joseph tells goes like this. When uh, Joseph and Napoleon were young boys in school together in Corsica, they were taking part in sort of the school project. Um, And the project split the students into two groups. And each one was supposed to represent a different side in an ancient battle between the Romans and the Carthaginians. Joseph was placed in the group which represented the Romans. And this is the group that's supposed to win the battle. Um, while Napoleon is supposed to be put with the losing side. He was supposed to be um, part of the Carthage team. As Joseph tells the story, his brother begged, like little brothers do, uh, Mm -hmm. begged and begged and begged to switch sides so that he could be, you know, on the winning side with the Romans. Um, And Joseph was like, no, 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 until finally Joseph has enough, and he says, fine, you can switch sides. And Napoleon is very happy, and um, the, the sort of project goes on. But then whenever the day is over and they're walking home, Napoleon suddenly has an attack of conscience, realizes how he treated Joseph, and apologizes, and he's incredibly, incredibly sorry for how he acted. I kind of like picturing Napoleon as a typical little brother. I mean, temper tantrums and apologies and kind of makes me happy to not have siblings. Well, as the oldest of four, I can tell you that, um, yeah, we spend most of our time uh, telling the younger ones what to do and with varying degrees of success. But Yeah, I don't think Joseph had a lot of success, but at least Napoleon apologized. Uh, yeah, I guess that's something. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's this interesting contrast because later in life, Napoleon becomes known for sort of his tenacity and courage on the battlefield, um, mm-hmm. as well as, well, he's maniacally controlling of the people around him and of his family. Mm-hmm. He admits that he was a grumpy little boy um, and a grumpy little brother, uh, constantly causing trouble and picking fights, but then uh, proving always to – he always had an attack of conscience afterwards, felt very sorry, very remorseful for his actions, which sort of helps us segue into our second topic. Uh, But as we do that, I want you to bear in mind that, you know, the, the man who would eventually wind up to conquering most of Western Europe was once himself a little boy playing war games with his brother and He was was being a little boy like all other little boys were. Soon enough, he was at the forefront of French politics, serving as the first consul, who was essentially the uncrowned king, and it was the beginning of the 19th century. 
the monarchy gave way to the republic under the revolution. Then the revolutionary government was replaced by a somewhat troubled ineffectual. directorate and ineffectual, yes. After the coup of 1799, we have a consulate, and eventually it would be an empire. But, you know, throughout all of this, the one constant in Napoleon's life was his family, right? I mean, his right. family, in this case, I'm discussing his brothers and sisters, and on some occasions, his mother. In fact, I was reading a book about Napoleon's stepdaughter, Hortense, and the author referred to the Bonaparte siblings simply as the clan. Um, it's a frighteningly appropriate title, so that's what we're going to call this second section, the Bonaparte clan. <laughs> it sounds very ominous. Um, I know. And I guess in, in many ways that it, it, it is, because um, by the time Napoleon falls from power in 1814, uh, he had relatives on many of the thrones of continental Europe. And it's really impressive whenever you think about it, because he wasn't in power for all of that long. It demonstrates uh, how quickly he moved uh, within the space of a decade to consolidate his power base by placing his relatives on the throne or marrying members of his family into the thrones of everywhere from Holland to Spain. I know. And in some cases, he even created places to put people. That was kind of fun. Anyway, <laughs> um, in the late 18th and early 19th century, marriages of political alliance were still incredibly important. Not to mention they were really pretty common. You forged bonds and then you forged new ones after you broke those. And it was all kind of like a real life game of thrones. Or the Borgias. Yeah, something, something like that. Any of those dramas that you see on TV with political alliance marriages, the facts in those cases might not be correctly portrayed, but marriages for politics were pretty much Poor Rob the way Stark. of Poor yes. Rob Stark! <laughs> anyway, Napoleon had a really large family, and you know he should have been able to marry them off all over the place, because that's kind of why you have large families when you become very influential. You use them to cement your influence over other places. But in the case of the Bonaparte clan, nobody really wanted to listen to him. And part of the reason they didn't want to listen is they didn't want to marry whoever he wanted them to. So instead of instead of letting their brother marry marry them into their crowns, instead of doing that, he had to seize the countries and then plant his relatives on the throne instead. You know, it's, it's something where you think that he is not getting his way because his very passionate brothers and sisters wouldn't let him do that to them. But I'm not really sure who he was insulted by more. Was it his sisters who got him angrier or his brothers? Because since nobody listened to him, which one was more offensive, right? Napoleon had three sisters, and they all had major affairs of the heart. There was Elisa. Elisa married a poor Corsican captain, who was pretty much low on the impressive meter to anybody except Elisa. Caroline, who fell in love with and later married, do we pronounce this? Joaquin. Joaquin. Caroline fell in love with and married Joaquin Murat, one of Napoleon's generals, so at least he was, I guess, a somewhat less offensive choice. And there was Pauline, universally known as the vixen of the group. First, she married a certain General Leclerc, who then died, um, and that freed her up to marry again. And again, she didn't listen to her brother. And she married an Italian named Camillo Borghese. If anybody out there has ever seen The Bachelor, you may remember Lorenzo Borghese. I think he was The Bachelor in season nine, I guess. Anyway, he's a descendant of this couple. And actually, I'm, he wrote a historical novel about Pauline called 
The Princess of Nowhere, if anybody's interested. So, <laughs> the more you know. And shooting um, star. Yes, like, there you go. So, anyway, two of the brothers had uneventful marriages. Joseph, being the oldest, was married before Napoleon became powerful. And Louis, who was Napoleon's favorite sibling, married the person of Napoleon's choice. So I guess that made him the pet. I actually think that of all of the brothers, it would have to be his brother Jerome, who was the most offensive in his choice. But, you know, his sisters were annoying in their love matches, but Jerome crossed the line. <laughs> I don't know. Um, his brother Lucien really, really pissed him off, too. Yeah, no, that's true. He did. He did. But, um, you know, Jerome not only married for love, but he did worse than that. Jerome was in the United States as a member of the French Navy at one point, and he met a young woman named Elizabeth Patterson in Baltimore, and he promptly married her. They had a child together, but when Napoleon wanted to make Jerome the king of Westphalia, he wanted nothing to do with Miss Patterson. He would never even call her Elizabeth or Mrs. Bonaparte. She was Miss Patterson, the American. So he would never agree to place her on a throne. So the Bonapartes loved America, but not in the sense of allowing themselves to marry an American. But except for <laughs> Jerome, who did it anyway. Anyway, he tried to get the Pope to annul the marriage, whether Jerome wanted it or not. But the Pope refused. So Napoleon decided, sort of like Henry VIII did, that he's just going to dissolve the marriage himself. And then he forced his poor brother into the political match. Miss Patterson didn't stand a chance. Oh, it's not a happy ending. No, um, it is not. Yeah, Apparently well, he, he cheated a lot on his next, his poor, sad wife that followed because he was not happy. Well, yeah. Speaking of, of unhappy, um, his his brother Lucian's story is actually quite good too. Uh, mm -hmm. His first night, his first wife was named Christine, um, <laughs> and uh, she was his landlord's daughter and his housekeeper's sister. Yes. Um, she was illiterate. And she was from the town of San Maximin la San Bum. Obviously, she is lowborn and mm -hmm. has absolutely no pedigree whatsoever. Uh, but he loves her and stays with her until her death. They have three children together. Yes. Uh, then a few years later, uh, he does get involved with his brother's politics. Um, his brother tries to arrange a marriage for him, but mm -hmm. instead he, first of all, causes scandal by openly living with a woman who was separated from her husband and then marrying her against <gasps> Napoleon's will when oh, – no. I know, shock. Scandal, then scandal. marrying her against Napoleon's will whenever her husband dies. Scandal. I mean, really, seriously. What's the use of having a big family if you can't use them to marry politically? Really? Um, <laughs> what was the point? Do we need to have a talk about morality? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Morality is out the window at this point. We're talking about <laughs> politics. Love is not involved. That's why you have mistresses and affairs. Anyway, even his mother kind of got him angry every once in a while because, you know, she wasn't too thrilled on things and, and she fought with her sons a lot. She actually took Lucy inside for a long time in the Lucian Napoleon rift, as you might mm -hmm. say. And she actually boycotted Napoleon's coronation as emperor in December of 1804, which Napoleon didn't really like because it was important to him to have his family there. And not only was Lucian absent, but so was the mother. Madame Mère. Yes, that's what we had to call her, Madame Mère. Anyway, so Napoleon didn't take this very well, and he decided that he was going to have the last word, as Napoleon does. And I guess... This is a very telling point of his life. He uh, had the painting of the coronation done by the famous Jacques-Louis David. And if you ever go to the Louvre, you can see it on display. But when you look at it, you should notice that 
his mother is in the painting. She wasn't there, <laughs> but she's in the painting because Napoleon insisted that she be painted into it anyway, to appear for all eternity as if she had been there. This is what we call 19th century Photoshop. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. I mean, you know, you have to deal with your problems somehow. That's really <laughs> all I can say about that. His family was full of people who did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and it probably drove him crazy because, and I have to give him one thing. I mean, if you're trying to run a country and you can't even, you know, have a dinner party with your family without trouble breaking out, it's probably a little bit stressful. <laughs> well, and it probably reflects, that. it probably reflects poorly on you. Um, right. as a ruler, because, you know, if you can't control your family, how do you expect to control France? That exactly. said, there were two members of his family who weren't actually members of his family who did go along with what he said um, well, and did they as were they were told. they were members of his family. They were not blood members of his family. No, they were members of his family by marriage. Correct. They were his stepchildren, Eugene and Hortense. Actually, you know, Eugene was one of Napoleon's all-time favorite people. Um, and Hortense is kind of my favorite person in history pretty much ever. And I kind of want to put it out there that one day I would like to play her in a TV series or play. So if somebody <laughs> can make that happen for me. I would be really Shilling happy. Shilling for work here on the podcast. That's right. I, I can pull it off. We have similar hair color and blue eyes. And I am perfectly willing to wear empire dress and look sad a lot. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, anyway, I digress, right? So yeah. Eugene and Hortense, Napoleon's stepchildren, who were the, the son and daughter of Josephine from her first marriage to Alexandre de Beauharnais, who died during the French Revolution. They both did what Napoleon wanted, and they married the people who were chosen for them. Eugene eventually became the viceroy of Italy, and he had married a Germanic, I suppose you'd call her Germanic, princess. Is it Bavaria that she was from? Amalia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so he marries a, a Germanic princess from Bavaria. And Hortense marries... Okay, now ready for this one? Hortense marries Napoleon's brother Louis. Okay? So his stepdaughter marries his brother. She didn't want to, by the way. As a matter of fact, she severely did not want to. And the real story is that Louis was actually in love with her friend Emily, who was actually her cousin. So Louis wanted to marry Hortense's cousin, but wasn't allowed to. So instead he had to marry his stepniece, which meant that when Louis and Hortense then had children, those children were simultaneously Napoleon's step-grandsons and his nephews. <laughs> but wait, let, let's just point out for one second that there was actually some sort of logic it doesn't seem like there would be logic, but there is. Napoleon knew early on that it was very unlikely that he and Josephine were going to be able to have children, but he loved her and he still wanted to be with her and he wanted to be able to secure an heir to the throne, which was not yet a throne, but was eventually going to be the imperial throne. Um, so his thought was the next closest thing would be a marriage separately between her bloodline and his bloodline. And then those children would be the ones that took over for him. So it was the closest thing he could come to, as opposed to having his own blood child. Just thought okay. I'd share, because that is logical. I mean, it's it's weird, admittedly. Yes. But, but <laughs> there was a motivation for the intermarriage. Anyway. Um, no, I mean, it, it, no, it, it makes sense. It makes sense as, a, as sort of a political motivation. Uh, we just get skipped out because 
it borders on, you know, incest. It's not incest right. because there's yeah, no blood not. relation, but, right. you know. It just seems like it because they were raised as family. So. It's a little creepy. Exactly. Anyway, that was kind of a lot of information all at one time. Um, but we were just trying to say that these are the kinds of things that were happening in his family all the while he was trying to run or consolidate Europe and France and get everything working again. Well, with all of that sort of anger and frustration and difficulties with his family, not to mention uh, the, the various political machinations and military maneuvers. I mean, the man is constantly at war with half of Europe. How? What was Napoleon like in private? Did he have a sense of humor? And the answer to that is, yes, he did. It was a little warped, but he did. He had a very good time with his family and friends. Uh, he was known for a couple of things. Uh, he enjoyed the youthful vigor of children. Yes, and he also had an extremely bizarre sense of humor. Um, and this brings us to uh, our third topic, uh, Napoleon the funny guy. Yes, Napoleon, well, he thought he was funny, whether or not anybody else agreed with him. Uh, I mean, you know, we mentioned earlier that one of the great things about this time period was how many people wrote about it. You know, memoirs were everywhere, and the authors were paid by the word, so they liked to put as much detail in them as possible. This caused a lot of repetition and also some very long, almost incomprehensible sentences. But it also gave us crazy amounts of detail about what life was like with him. Which we um, as historians of, love. Oh, I love, love that sort of thing. Anyway, none of the memoirs that I read um, vary on the theme of this one quirk that Napoleon had in his personal life. He really liked to tweak people's ears. Ugh. Yeah, I know, I know. If Imagine how annoying it is when your, like, creepy aunt or uncle does that to you, but... If someone started tweaking my ear every time they told me a joke, I'd probably elbow them or something else. But when the person throw is them into a, a wall, <laughs> exactly. But when the person who's doing it is the general, the first consul, or the emperor, you kind of just put up with it. Mm. Everyone from his stepdaughter to the wife of his friend talks about it, and most of them mention hating it, but that Napoleon thought he was so funny that he would use it as the punctuation for any joke that he told. No one was safe from this strange and somewhat aggressive sense of humor. Um, we actually have two really good anecdotes from his stepdaughter about exactly this kind of thing. Uh, the first story involves sort of this, well, on the one hand, it's kind of this stereotypical experience of being embarrassed by your dad, um, or in Hortense's case, your stepfather. So one evening in 1801, Hortense um, is at a dinner party, uh, and she's waiting uh, for other with the other guests for Napoleon to arrive so that they could all you know go into the dining room and eat. Um, Napoleon, who was apparently in a good mood, comes into the salon where they're all waiting and goes up to Hortense and leans over to whisper into her ear in a very gossipy sort of way. And he says, we have just been into your bedroom, your mother and I. We've ransacked everything and read all your letters. How absolutely wonderful it must be to have so many beautiful de declarations of love. She was uh, mortified, as you can imagine. <laughs> and she runs straight out of the room, completely paranoid that, they've act that they found an actual love letter that she did receive. And she goes to her room, realizes that her – or sees that her room has not been ransacked, comes back to the salon and is just completely mortified. Because not only um, 
has she sort of made an idiot of her of herself but she's revealed to her stepfather that she actually does have secret love letters somewhere in her room awesome. um, <laughs> um napoleon's reaction I mean, he's incredibly amused by this proceeds to tease her about it for the rest of the evening um mm. and and make fun of the fact that she does have sort of secrets um and he thinks it's just absolutely hilarious pretty sure that he was actually hilarious it's fun to embarrass children as long as you're not the child who's being embarrassed right oh yeah of course not i mean okay our second story is perhaps a little different and it happened several years later it's about a topic that i don't think was a laughing matter but the incident happened early enough that napoleon could show a certain level of snark at the situation and Snark is something that we tend to love now, so I guess he uh, was an early runner of the snark movement. Um, <laughs> There's and, a snark movement? Yes. <laughs> it's no secret, you know, we, as we mentioned before, that Napoleon and Josephine had trouble conceiving. So eventually her inability to have children would lead to their divorce because he did need an heir and he would marry an Austrian woman and have a legitimate child. But anyway, in the early days... You know, he wanted to use one of Hortense and Louis's children to be his heir. So when Louis and Hortense had a little boy, um, they wanted to name him Charles. And then Napoleon came in and he said, you know what? I think Napoleon Charles would sound better. So it was his intention to eventually adopt this boy and make him his heir. I guess, uh, my guess is that, that the rest of the family wasn't terribly happy about this. No, no, they, they were not thrilled. Um, and they were very vocal about their disagreement with this. So when Napoleon one day was sitting about with his potential heir, little Napoleon Charles, on his knee, teasing him and pinching his cheeks, as it were, Napoleon's sister Caroline decided that it was the appropriate moment to voice her objections. She overheard Napoleon telling the little boy that he could be a king someday, and immediately she wanted to know what would happen to her son, Achille. Well, we already know that he moves to Florida, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what a name. Achille. Yeah. Achilles. Ugh. Yes. Well, anyway, he moves to Florida, but at this point, I like to think that she had grander expectations for her son. Um, <laughs> well, she named him Achilles. What do you want? <laughs> exactly. So... She wants to know, well, what's happening to her little kid if Louis' son is getting all this special treatment? So Napoleon, the king of snark, says to her that, you know, Achille will make a great soldier. But then he looks to Napoleon and Charles and he says, take my advice, you poor little thing. If you want to live, never accept anything to eat from one of your cousins. Ooh, burn. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I kind of love it. He was so self-aware and yet able to laugh about these kind of things. I mean, you can just imagine Caroline being really angry when she hears that. Oh, no, she was livid. Yeah, exactly. Napoleon, um, well, what this does show us, though, is that Napoleon's a very intense person and feels things yes. very intensely. One of the areas in which we see this is his marriage to Josephine. Incident, speaking of this marriage to Josephine, um, earlier this year, uh, Napoleon and Josephine made some very minor news. You probably didn't hear about it. Uh, the engagement ring that he presented to her in 1796 
was auctioned off in France, and it fetched a whopping $949,000. And it was not me who bought it. If it were, we would, be, we would not be having this conversation. <laughs> no, because I'd be wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's actually very... It's very plain. When did they... 1796? Well, at the time that they were getting married, he wasn't even first consul. Uh, no, he was he, not. He was just a general. He was a military upstart. Yeah, I mean, he was just a, he was just a general in service of the directorate. So it's actually a, a simple uh, sort of thin gold band with uh, two teardrop cut uh, stones. One is a diamond, one is a sapphire, each is a carat in size. And they're sort of facing in opposite directions, touching each other. Um, I mean, it's not really the opulence that you would eventually see uh, in the Bonaparte clan in the later Empire years. But again, he's only a um, he's only a general at this point. Absolutely, and I would like to wear that ring. <laughs> well, Josephine apparently liked it. But anyway, um, the point is, we were talking about um, sort of Napoleon the the passionate, his intense uh, sort of relationship, particularly with Josephine. And one area in which we can see this is in his letters. Um, if you're interested, you can actually uh, buy printed editions of his letters. There are a ton of, of translations into English, and they're actually really fascinating. They are. I love them. I would like to. My personal favorite were the ones that were edited by Diana Reed Haig, although they tend to choose the softer translation of some of the things that he said. Yeah. Um, I just enjoy her editing skills. So her commentaries that go along with them are some of my favorites. Incidentally, she also did a really cool book called um, Walks Through Napoleon and Josephine's Paris, which I highly suggest if you ever go to Paris and you look at that book. It's very small. You could carry it with you, and it tells you pretty much everywhere in the city that they ever went. Oh. I, I use it every time I go. I try and knock some more places off of the list. His letters with Josephine are a lot of fun for historians because they reveal a really interesting side to his personality. Uh, they're also very frustrating because we don't have her responses, if mm-hmm. indeed there were responses. Um, some people think that she didn't write him back. Um, and there are some clues in, in the letters that suggest that he, she definitely did not write to him as often as he wanted. So whenever you read them, since we only have his side of the correspondence, I mean, it's like hearing one half of a phone conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can see particularly two examples of his intensity and his mood swings in his letters to her um, in two letters written in 1796. Uh, this is the year that they get married. So while Napoleon is on campaign in northern Italy. The first one is incredibly sort of angry. And he says uh, to Josephine, and this is this is dated November 23rd, uh, 1796. Mm-hmm. I don't love you one bit. On the contrary, I detest you. You are a naughty, gawkish, foolish slut. You never write to me. You don't care for your husband. You know the pleasure your le- letters give him, and you write him barely half a dozen lines, thrown off anyhow. How then do you spend the whole day, madam? What business is of such importance that it robs you of the time to write to your very kind lover? What inclination stifles and alienates love, the affectionate and unvarying love that you promised me? Who may this paragon be, this new lover who apparently engrosses all your time, is master of your days, and prevents you from concerning yourself with your husband? Josephine, be vigilant. One night, the doors will be broken into, and I will be before you. Truly, my dear, I'm getting uneasy at no no news from you. 
write me four pages immediately and some of those charming remarks which fill my heart with pleasures of imagination. I hope that before long, I will clasp you in my arms and cover you with a million kisses as if burning under, as if we were at the equator. Sincerely, Bonaparte. Sexy. <laughs> Someone had a, a pretty big mood swing there. Yeah, I um, love that. He, see, it's, it's the fires of a blazing passion. Yeah, all of his letters, even to those, uh, even those not addressed to Josephine, were incredibly affectionate. Um, he liked to, to uh, sign off his letters with "Never doubt my affection." Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, even after they got divorced uh, and she was living at Malmaison, uh, he continues to write to Josephine fairly regularly mm-hmm. and stresses his fondness for her. As little as a month before his remarriage to um, uh, Marie Louise, an Austrian. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes to her saying, I long to see you, but the reflections that you make may be true. It's perhaps not desirable that we should be under the same roof for at least the first year. I think that that does underscore how close they actually were. I mean, no one's ever going to say that either of them were perfect, and they never said that themselves. Both were accused of affairs and jealousy for the duration of their marriage. But whatever it was that they had was obviously special in some way. I mean, he never wanted to ditch her. If, if he had, he would not have hesitated to get rid of her far earlier than he did. You know, in, in one of the few letters that we have that Josephine wrote to him, it's in 1810, and she's thanking him for never forgetting her and declaring that you know, no matter what happens, she's always going to love him. <clears throat> and so just so no one thinks that, you know, we're picking Josephine over Napoleon's second wife, in order to discuss the more famous one, um, the thing about Marie Louise, and by the way, her full name, um, Ma- Marie Louise, is is the Francicization of her name. Her yes. uh, her full name is Maria Ludovica Leopoldina Franciscana Francisca Teresa Josefa Lucia von Habsburg Lotharingen. Marie Louise of Austria. Such a nice ring to it. <laughs> I know, very succinct, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, you know, wait, wait. Can I just inject here that Napoleon really liked to change people's names? So, <laughs> I mean, up until Josephine married him, her name was Rose. Her name was had a Joseph within it, within the length, the long mm-hmm. chain of names, and everybody called her Rose. And then he was like, oh, "I'm going to call you Josephine." Uh, the reason that Marie-Louise marries Napoleon, um, because she is Marie-Louise of Austria, um, yes, is that he needs Austria. an heir. Yeah, he needs an heir, and she's considered to be relatively quiet and, you know, will keep to herself. This this idea, though, of putting an, another Austrian on the, on the throne, uh, if you remember back to our podcast on the French Revolution, part of the reason that Marie Antoinette had so many problems with the French people is that she was Austrian. She was not native. Mm-hmm. Um, they were wary of the Austrians. And so people were very concerned because, you know, we had just had a queen uh, with Marie Antoinette and now we're uh, – that was Austrian. And now we're about to have an Austrian empress. Um, and so the idea of putting another Austrian on the throne wasn't exactly very well received. Despite this, she and Napoleon were married and they did have a son. But whenever, whenever the coalition of European nations uh, – begin to march on Paris. She's forced to flee the capital. She stays as long as she possibly can. The day after she leaves, the army of the coalition marches into uh, Paris and takes Paris. So you're a, you're an apologist, are you? What? No, she stayed for as long as she... Her, Is that the, right? her memoirs say, her memoirs say, you know, I stayed for as long they as do. I could. 
They do say that. However, those of us who are on his side say she blatantly ignored that he kept telling her, don't leave. Don't leave under any circumstances. Well, because, you know, Austria was part of the coalition, he hoped that by having Marie-Louise set up as the regent, that that would allow his son to remain in position. Because there was a, there was a lot of resistance, and, and a lot of people weren't recognizing his divorce with Josephine as well. Well, and he never he never really says anything about Marie-Louise that shows that he resents, you know, her as his choice until Josephine's death, right? Right. Yeah, no, he never he never spoke out against Marie-Louise. I mean, he goes into exile. Marie-Louise does not want to go with him. Um, she has no desire to do that. She could have gone. She would have been allowed to go. She does not. And, you know, that did not sit too well with him because Josephine probably would have gone. We can't say that she... Yeah, no, she would have gone. But... He never outwardly criticized her until after Josephine died in 1814, when he was said to have remarked that of Josephine, she had her failings, of course, but she at any rate would never have abandoned me. So that was sort <laughs> yeah, of his, it's, a, it's a little passive aggressive, yeah. It's his, it's his, yeah, it's his passive aggressive yeah. moment. But with that being said, you know, n- now we've got Napoleon in exile. I guess we have to talk about the darker side of things. We've covered his family, the sense of humor his childhood, his love and passion that came through in his letters, and things didn't always go that well for him. And eventually, you have to discuss his death. Nathan likes conspiracy theories. We know this because he does a few podcasts on them, and there are tons and tons of them about what happened to Napoleon during specifically his second exile. And so I'm going to let him do that because I much prefer talking about Josephine and Hortense. In case you're not up on your Napoleonic history, um, after Napoleon is defeated, he, uh, for the first time, he is sent into exile. And he's sent into exile on the island of Elba, which is just off of the, the western uh, Italian coast. He's not there for, he's not there for very long. Uh, he manages to escape, uh, lands in southern France, begins marching north, collecting um, men and troops and support as he goes and is eventually defeated and forced into exile again. But the British have wised up at this point, and instead of sending him to nice, cozy, Mediterranean climate Elba, they send him to the island of St. Helena. St. Helena is a rock on which almost nothing grows in the South Atlantic. It is a horrible place. Pretty much. (laughs) Sort of in between South America and uh, Africa. And no one wanted him to come back, and he will eventually die there six years after his final defeat on May 5th, 1821. The conspiracy theory aspect has to do with how he died. When he dies, uh, the surgeon performs an autopsy, and the initial autopsy finding is that he has a stomach ulcer and that he has stomach cancer. Uh, and that they, they determine that this cancer is the cause of death. In the mid-20th century, some memoirs of one of his servants uh, are published, and this leads historians, a couple of historians, to suggest that, in fact, he had been poisoned by the British with arsenic. And the way that this arsenic was distributed, there are a couple of different conspiracy theories about how it was ingested. What happened is that uh, they slowly sort of fed him arsenic, and it eventually built, built up into his system. Um, another popular theory is that uh, they doused his wallpaper with it. 
as one but, does. Well, yeah, that that and that by inhaling and touching the wallpaper, as one does, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I often uh, that, inhale my wallpaper. <laughs> that this released fumes into the room. He inhaled the arsenic, and uh, he died. In fact. This arsenic theory gained a lot of currency, and uh, people were sort of forced to deal with it. So they did some testing on various pieces of Napoleon's hair throughout his life. Um, I'm assuming that these are locks of hair that were given as mementos. I don't know. Probably. Um, and if you have arsenic in your system, it will sort of register in your hair. And Napoleon uh, had in his system about a hundred times the amount of arsenic that an average person today has, um, because in the late 18th and early 19th century, arsenic was used. Ars arsenic had a bunch of uses. Uh, it was used in a wide variety of common chemicals, and because of that, not only Napoleon but everyone else in the period would have been exposed to high levels of arsenic. So compared to us, Napoleon did have high levels of arsenic in his system. But compared to everyone else who was living in the late 18th and early 19th century, the arsenic levels were not suspicious. And in fact, sort of the autopsy was gone over again, and it, with some as much degree of accuracy as, as we can determine, it's been re resolved that he died of uh, stomach cancer and a gastric ulcer. Cancer was really big at that time. Not that it's not really big now, but at least one of the... No, I was It was saying, super it popular. Was... Everybody was getting cancer. Well, well you know, I mean... One, well, with the amount one... of arsenic in their system, can you really blame them? Well, I mean, his stepdaughter died of it. At least one of his sisters did. Yeah, well, that's the, other, that's the other thing. That's the other reason why they think that it was uh, stomach cancer, because his father died of uh, stomach cancer. So, yeah, so it, it may have been a hereditary thing. Right, exactly. I've always been sad about the death of Napoleon, but now it's okay because we can all go visit him. <laughs> yes, after he dies, his body is repatriated into France and it is buried at Les Invalides. Um, if by buried, you mean put inside like seven different coffins and then put yes. on a giant pedestal and made into the, one of the coolest memorials. This thing is a gaudy memorials. monstrosity. No, it's the, it, is, it is my mother's favorite place in all of France. Well, it was. It was a. It's a. It's a very. It's a very popular sort of pilgrimage site. Um, there's some wonderful oh pictures of Hitler <laughs> visiting Napoleon. <laughs> anyway, I guess that cheerful bit <laughs> brings us to the end of our five topics about Napoleon the Man. I hope you have pondered them, and that you will continue to ponder them, or at least until next month when we start talking about Napoleonic society. Lining up almost exactly with Napoleon's birthday. We're going to discuss Napoleonic society instead of Napoleon the man. While his family and his friends were dealing with his personality quirks and uh, hiding their ears from his tweaking, people all around France were beginning to live with the changes that he brought into their everyday lives. Uh, next time, we'll be talking about the advent and appearance uh, and dissemination of the Napoleonic Code, uh, how the loose revelries of the revolution gave way to a whole new form of strict social etiquette. And then there was also that time that he decided to undo the economy of England by establishing a city. Just to do smuggling. Why not? That's what you do. <laughs> yes, but that is for next time. So, happy Bastille Day, everyone. Happy Bastille Day. Allons enfants de la patrie. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Join us next week when we'll be talking about the tragic history of Joanna of Naples. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!